Next week, the question he answers is, who, are, who is the other, essentially? How do we view each other? So what Paul is doing is he is providing us in Ephesians 1 and 2 a framework and understanding that should shape our perspective and our view of the world that we navigate. Who is God? Who am I? Knowledge of, of the other. In verses 1 through 3, what we see as we dive into the exploration of ourself, verses 1 through 3, Paul paints a picture, and it's a picture of a life that is lived without Christ. It's a life lived without Christ in verses 1 through 3. Let me just read it real quick. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul paints in these three verses a tragic picture of what life looks like apart from Christ. And to be sure, this picture of life without Christ is essentially as bad as it can get. And, and we need to be clear. When Paul addresses this, he is, he is speaking of what is something that is true for, for every single one of us. You'll see his language shifts. And you were dead in verses 1, 2, and verse 3. We all once lived. This is a truth that can be universally applied to every single person. He's not referring to a particularly nasty subset of people. He is referring to every piece of humanity. And as he tells us what our story is, where your story begins, he singles out three terrifying truths about what our status in life is apart from Christ. The first is simply this. Without Christ, we are dead. Without Christ... We are dead. You see it in verses 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And you see it again in verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Of course, Paul is speaking here specifically of a spiritual death. He says that you were dead in these trespasses in which you once walked. So we have sort of this life that lives in our body. We are consciously alert and aware, yet... We are unaware of the darkness that we are walking in. The darkness that we are choosing to walk in. This is a picture ultimately of the walking dead. We are dead to the things of God. Our relationship with God is not, and this is critical for us to understand. Your relationship, your life without Christ, your relationship to God is not simply strained. Okay? It's not strained. It is severed. You are alienated, separated from the one true source of life. Prophet Isaiah puts it like this in chapter 59, verse 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. These trespasses, these sins, they have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he can no longer... Hear you. 
This is a, an incredibly terrible place to be in. The one true source of life, the good, the greatest good that exists is hiding his face from us, separated from him. And this death that we experience without Christ is the result of our trespasses, it tells us, which is a, a false step. There's a, a line, a boundary marked in the sand and you step across that boundary. It's a deviation from the one true right path. It, this death is the result of our trespasses and it's the result of our sins. Trespasses, a false step, overstepping, wrong direction in our sins. The idea that God has a holy, righteous standard that is his holiness and we fall short. We miss the mark. These two words cover the active and the passive reality of our rebellion. It's not simply, and this is critical for us to understand, this is not simply the result of our doing. Okay, Our separation from God is not simply the result of our doing. It is that, but it's more than that. This is the result of our being. This rebellious spirit, this fallen condition, it is in our nature. It can't be reduced simply to what we do. Folks, it is who we are. Look at verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. See, this is significant because it tells us our biggest problem is bound up in our nature. Okay? It is who we are. Our biggest problem, my biggest problem is me. Now, this is an incredibly different narrative than what the rest of the world wants us to believe, right? The rest of the world wants us to believe that fundamentally, my problem is you. My problem, and there might be a degree of truth to that, right? But not at the foundational level, all right? At the foundational level, my biggest problem is me. Without Christ, we are dead. Secondly, without Christ, we are in chains. Apart from Christ, just like we have sort of the appearance of life, apart from Christ, we also have the appearance of freedom, the illusion of independence. But our reality is quite different. There is no freedom, but rather a bondage to the forces that, that we have no control over. We are, in fact, held under, sort of captive, under a triple tyranny. Three things that kind of bind us, that hold us captive, that enslave us. We see it in verse 1, the, the ways of this world, following the course of this world. We recognize that society is organized without God, right? We live in a secular age, a, a world that resists the things that are of God. We're, we're bound and captive to this world. We're also... Enslaved to the influence of Satan, following the prince of the power of the air. 
Paul recognizes that not just is there a way that the world works that inherently sort of resists and rebels against God, there's also an enemy. There's an enemy who actively opposes the things of God. Lastly, the, the wickedness of our own nature, the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body. Our nature has been compromised. So the way Paul says it in Romans chapter 7 is even though you might have an, an ambition, a desire to do what is right, the ability to carry it out, you do not have. And probably every single one of us can relate to that in some level. That there is, although there exists in us a desire to do what is right, the ability to fully live that out, we lack. Because we are enslaved to the flesh. Uh, a number of years ago, we had a number of hamsters that called my home their home, okay? They moved in, and they just took it over. We, we started with just one. It, you know, we can kind of figure that out with science, biologically. It multiplied, okay? So we bought her pregnant, okay? And uh, had many, many hamsters. The OG, Scratches, the original hamster, um, was named Scratches, and I can remember one night we were uh, eating dinner, for whatever reason, I went upstairs, and they kept, you know, scratches kept breaking out of the cage. Like, don't do that. It's, this is your safe space, okay? You break out, like, terrible things can happen. Um, well, I, I walked by the room, and I noticed, and the way I noticed that scratches was out was because there was, you know, the, the wheel that the hamsters run in was sitting on the floor uh, kind of next to the cage. And scratches had broken out, but I heard the wheel running on the floor outside of the cage. So as I walked by the room, I looked in and I saw a hamster who had broken out of captivity, okay? Who had got a taste of freedom. But as she was walking by that wheel, she couldn't resist and just started running on the wheel, right? She had freedom but she was still bound in her nature because she was a hamster who wanted to run on a wheel, right? Folks, that is us. That is us. We are captive by our nature. We are dead in our sins and in our trespasses, and we are in chains. We are in chains. We are in need of not just a life giver, but a chain breaker. So we're dead, we're enslaved. Paul also tells us that without Christ, we are doomed. Many in our culture today, both inside and outside the church, have a problem with the idea of a God who would condemn, who would judge anyone. A God who would be angry or who would pour out his wrath. It's common for some today to look at biblical passages where God gets angry and judges people and think to themselves, that's precisely why I reject your religion. It's too primitive. It is too dangerous. Even some Christians seem to want to tone down or even eliminate altogether the doctrine of divine wrath. The Bible is going to be your biggest problem 
in attempting to do that. They see God's wrath as an embarrassment. Something to be qualified, explained, or reconfigured. And it's interesting, I think oftentimes the motivation that underlies this is, well, it's, it's primarily a misunderstanding of God and his character, really a misunderstanding of even his love. But it's interesting that in a desire to be loving and to emphasize, overemphasize, well, I shouldn't say overemphasize, but to emphasize God's love, dismissing God's wrath, dismissing the reality of God's wrath is actually doing the exact opposite thing they wanted to accomplish. To ignore God's judgment on sin and his wrath is in fact one of the most unloving things you can do. Scripture is very clear about God's personal, righteous, and constant hostility toward evil. This settled refusal, his settled refusal to compromise with it and his resolve instead to condemn it. God hates sin and he responds in his wrath to it. Now this, folks, in the verse 3 verses of chapter 2, we have, to be sure, a terrifying picture of what life looks like apart from Christ. Death, bondage, doom. It is as bad as it can get. And we all have sort of inflated views of ourselves, right? We are like grimy miners who are down in the pit comparing ourselves to each other, imagining ourselves relatively clean. That's what we do on a regular basis, right? God says, apart from Christ, you're dead, you're enslaved, and you're doomed. It is against this dark, dark, backdrop of the human condition, our natural predicament, that a bright portrait of God's grace emerges. And it does so with two of the sweetest words that you can read in all of scripture. But God, we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, but God made us alive. We were slaves in bondage, without honor, with no power, but God raised us with Christ, seated us at his right hand. We were objects of wrath, but God, out of his great love, showed us mercy. There are no two sweeter words in all of scripture than these two words. But God. God does this. And God alone does this. Seeing us in our state of need, in our 
pit of destruction, a miry bog, God moves towards us in his grace in a way that only God can do. He initiated, and in his sovereignty, he acted. Simply put, God saves us. What does he do? He makes us alive with Christ in verse 5. He raises us up with him in verse 6a. And he seats us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's what God does. What a reversal. What a reversal from as bad as it can be, from as low as it can go, to as good as it can be, and as high as you can be. It's a complete reversal. And you'll notice with these three things, he makes us alive, he raises us up, and he seats us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. These steps of progression in Paul's thinking correspond directly to the historical events surrounding the saving work of Jesus. He was crucified, dead on the cross. We too were dead in our trespasses and sins. But Jesus was made alive. And he ascended to the heavens where he now sits at the right hand of the Father. This is Jesus' story. Theologi you know, theologians refer to it naturally as the, the resurrection, the ascension, and the session of Jesus. And you notice what happens is Jesus' story becomes our story. Isn't that amazing? Jesus' story becomes our story. Christians have historically referred to what is happening in salvation as union with Christ. When God saves us by his grace, he unites us with Christ. Therefore, and again, this is critical, what constitutes us as a Christian people is not simply that we worship Jesus or that we admire Jesus or that we learn from Jesus or that we morally align with Jesus. We do all of those things. But our distinctness as a people is ultimately rooted, is ultimately rooted in who we are in Christ. He gives us, through the new birth, a new nature, a new identity. What ultimately makes us a Christian people is who we are in Christ. We were dead, but God made us alive. We were slaves to this world, but God has seated us in the heavenly places, victorious over the forces of evil in this world. This is who we are in Christ. Why did he do it? That's what he does. Why does he do it? Paul goes beyond just providing us with a description of what God did. What he is offering, maybe, to us this morning. And he gives us his motivation underneath it. Think of the saving work of Christ as a tree. And underneath the ground going to that tree is a root system that is sustaining that tree and keeping that tree 
up. He provides us sort of four different aspects or roots of his character that motivate God to do this. We see in verse 4 that he is rich in mercy. God withholding the punishment we deserve because Christ suffered under the hand of his wrath in our place. He endured the cross and he paid the price. God being rich in his mercy stays his hand. He does not give us what we deserve. God is rich in mercy. We also learn in verse 4 that not just is he rich in his mercy, he's also great in his love. Because of his great love with which he loved us, God has done this thing for us. All of this is a demonstration of his great love for us, a real love, a love that only God can offer. Folks, we have nothing to offer him, and he moves towards us. We have rebelled, turned our back, ignored his word and his ways, and yet he hunts us down because he loves us, because he loves you. And in verse 5, we also learn, and this is you know, really the, the main vehicle for which we are experiencing, which we experience salvation, is God's amazing grace. God generously provides for us everything we need in the obedience of Christ, even unto his death. There's a story of a, a preacher who uh, wanted to care for one of the older widow women in his church. And so one day, mid, middle of the week, he, he, he goes to care for her, knowing that she struggles, knowing that she doesn't have a lot of money. He had money in his hand, and he walks up to her house. He knocks on the door. He wants to bless her, right? Knocks on her door and waits patiently. Silence. No response. After a few moments pass, he, he knocks a little harder, knocks a little longer, and waits patiently. Several moments pass, and there's not a movement in the house, and so the preacher leaves and heads home, puts money from his hand to his pocket. Later that week, goes to church and sees the woman at church and says, oh, I... I came by to visit you. I had a gift for you. I wanted to bless you. And, she, and he says, but you were not home. And she says, oh, I was home. In fact, I heard you knocking. And I chose to not respond. Because I thought you were the landlord who had come to collect rent. And I didn't have any money. So I ignored the knock. Didn't respond to the knock. Folks, I think many of us perceive Christianity this way, right? God comes to us and knocks, wants to bless us. But what we see is him wanting to make a demand of us, wanting a box for us to check or a demand for us to fulfill. And there's a complete misunderstanding of what God does and what he offers to us. And the fact is, we are these new creations, is all a working of his grace. The box have been checked. The demands have been fulfilled. All he wants us to do with the empty hands and the full heart of faith is to reach out and receive the gift he offers us. 
We are products of his grace and his grace alone. We bring nothing to the table. Finally, in verse 7, we see it's also the result of God's active kindness. God coming to us in his kindness. Becoming one of us exchanges places with us on the cross. Folks, that's a picture of what life is like with Christ. It's better than you can even imagine. Finally, and just for the sake of time, probably skip down to verse 10. Read it real quick. And finally, we get, we get kind of a picture of what it looks like to live. So we have life, verses 1 to 3, without Christ. Verses 4 to 7, what life looks like with Christ. And then 8 through 10, we'll see what life looks like for Christ. And kind of a sub point underneath that is I want you to know that all of this, all of this is bigger than you. As we consider the working of God to unite us with Christ and to give us new life, we see that as good as it is for us, it is also larger than us. Verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's a story of a, a man who was a CEO who led a, started a company and uh, ran it for some 50 years. He was a humble man. He was a, a strong leader, and he was a man who cared well for his employees. He did not like the spotlight. Knowing he did not like the spotlight to celebrate some 50 years of his work for this company, his employees kind of went behind his back and commissioned a local artist, a really good artist, to paint a portrait of this man that would hang in the walls of their company. They had a celebration and they revealed the artwork of the man standing in front of it, just a portrait of him standing there. Moments of silence passed. He looked into his own eyes. He looked at the painting. It was quiet. Then he asked a question. His question was, who painted this? Who painted this. He was blown away by the beauty, by the craftsmanship, by the artistic glory of the painting. And he wanted to know who did this. What he didn't say as he stared into his own eyes was, man, who is that? Right? That's not what his response was. His response was, who painted this? If you are here today and you have run to the cross of Jesus and declared Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you are a divine work of art. And when other people look at you, see the life that you live, they know who you were and they see who you are now, they should ask the same question. Who did this? We are his workmanship. You are his divine work of art. Created in Christ Jesus 
for good works. So we do good works, not to glory in them and ourselves or to draw attention to them ourselves, but to divert the attention, to direct the glory to the greatest artist who first worked in us and now works through us. And folks, this was his plan from the very beginning. Right? We see this in chapter 1. Look over to chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. It says, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The purposes of God and the plan of God was, put the glory, was to put the glory of God on display from the very beginning through you and through me. I mean, what a reversal. What an absolute reversal from where we started, right? From being objects of his wrath to being instruments of his plan from the fullness of time. I mean, that's amazing. That is amazing. And the best part is we do nothing in it. I mean, that is the amazing thing. It is by grace that we have been saved through faith. It is all the working of God. And so as we give ourselves to doing good work in our community, we don't give ourselves to prove ourselves, right? We don't give ourselves to earn for ourselves. We give and we do because, what, because of what he has given and because of what he has done. And to put that on display, we are living signposts, constantly redirecting others to God's glory. So in closing, I want to ask you one question. I'm going to ask it twice so you can actually think about it. Okay? question is this. This is an amazing truth. This is a statement first. This is an amazing truth to be sure. Okay? How does this truth shape us as a community of people who are committed to learning Christ and living Christ together? I ask it one more time. How does this amazing reality shape us as a community of people who are committed to learning and living Christ together? Ask it a different way. If this is true, and we believe it is, and we commit ourselves to understanding it and to living it, how do we, as a community of people, look? How do we look? I mean, every Sunday morning, that's the question we should be asking, regardless of what text we're reading. How does this reality shape us as a people? I'll give you one possible answer. There's countless. It affects us in probably more ways than you can think or imagine. When these truths sink into our being, when we understand who God is, who we are, and why we need him, what he's done for us, it radically should affect and impact every single day of our existence. As long as there's breath in our lungs... This truth, 
should impact the steps that we take. I'll give you one just quick example. I think that if we embrace this truth as a people, if we, we live this truth as a people, we will, by nature, become an incredibly compelling community. A community of people that draws others in. This story is a story that is not limited. The, the movement from life, sorry, from death to life in Christ and life for Christ is all of our stories. We share this. This commonality transcends all of the man-made distinctions that we put up that divide us. And that's why we can come together as a community of faith, despite the fact that politically, ethnically, socially, we may be in completely different places. Yet what has made us one is this story, this shared experience. Now, I'll just say, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you've been searching for meaning in your life, your meaning, your life finds its resolution not in your effort, but in his grace. This is an invitation to be in Christ. As a people, when we embody this truth, right, what we don't do is we don't embrace sort of a hierarchy within our community where there are some people who are better, who are more gifted, and there's others who are struggling and defeated. There are some who are superior and there are some who are inferior. This is an, a leveling of us as a people. When we are in Christ, we all have the same problem, okay? We don't want to be those miners in the pit comparing each other while we wipe off our glasses. Who's cleaner than who, right? That's not a compelling community. We come and we enter into this space every week or into our community groups or into our homes and our lives and we both recognize, we all recognize that on the fu fundamental level, the most fundamental of life, we all share the same need and we all have the same solution. It's Jesus. When we embody this, we become a compelling community because when people walk through those doors, what they don't have to do before they walk in here is clean up, Right? Because Jesus does that for us. He's the one who reaches down in the pit of destruction, pulls us out of the miry bog, and sets our feet on a rock. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this reality. Lord, I thank you for your grace this morning. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to use your truth to shape us as your people. Lord, not just in this space and during this hour, Lord, but in all of our life. Lord, I pray that you would help us to dive deeply into the depths of your grace and your mercy and your love and your kindness. Lord, and I pray that we would, day by day, that you would open our eyes and show us how merciful you are to us, Lord that you would help us see your love 
for us. That you'd help us recognize and embrace the grace that you offer us and the kindness that you extend to us, Lord. And I pray that as we live in Christ, Lord, that you would help us to also live for Christ. We love and we ask these things in your name. Amen.
All right, church. Well, quick reminder, if you're new, we'd love to get the chance to know you. Um, there's a welcome card on your bulletin. You can tear that off, and there's an offering plate uh, box in the back. You can drop it in there. Um, also, if you would like to pray, we would love the opportunity to pray with you, to pray for you, and there'll be some folks that will be gathered up here ready and wanting to do that. So we just invite you that after dismissal to come on forward and, and just pray together. Um, we all need it. Um, finally, it is the grace of our Lord Jesus and is the love of the Father and is the fellowship of the Spirit that we go now. We will see you next week. Have a good one.